Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Have you ever had the chance to meet someone that you idolized? Were they what you expected? Did it change your perspective or how you lived? Paul prays that the Colossians would know God and that in knowing him, they would be changed. Teaching team member David McNeely brings us this message entitled, A Worthy Walk, which covers Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Thank you for joining us today. Recently, I was watching an ESPN uh, short film. Now, it's not uncommon that I'll be watching ESPN. But this is not one of the full-blown 30 for 30s that they do. This was one of the short films that they did that's a part of this series. And it's really incredible what they have done here. So the story, or the name of the title rather is this. It's, it's Ali, the mission. And the story is told of what Muhammad Ali did back in 1990. It may be one of the less known things that he's done, but honestly it might be one of the most important things uh, that he has ever done. Those of you who are alive will remember this well. At that time, Saddam Hussein, in August of 1990, had ordered his troops to enter into Kuwait and to take them over. And the UN responded with clear condemnation. It was apparent to Saddam that he would be in a position where folks would come in and try to remove him from power. And so he did something that was wickedly ingenious. He gathered people who were visiting either at the moment they're Iraq or that they were those who were working who were from other countries, but not Iraqi citizens. He gathered folks from around the world who were there and he used them as human shields. He placed them in strategic places so that when other forces came in, if they were to move in by force, they would be taking the lives of people who didn't deserve to have their lives taken. Using them as, as human shields, it was remarkable. Muhammad Ali had gone over there to beg and to plead for the lives of some of these citizens. To go and to say, would you please release some of these folks? And, and it was a political thing and... and uh, Um, he met with everyone that he could possibly meet with. He was battling, as he still is to this day, Parkinson's. And towards the end of his time there, he actually ran out of his Parkinson's medication. If you have anyone who has Parkinson's, you know how devastating and damaging that would be. Fortunately, at the last minute, more medication was brought in to him. He finally got a meeting with Saddam. And at the end of that meeting, Saddam told him this, I will not let you go back to America without some of your friends. And so a handful of lives were saved. They marched out of the room and Muhammad Ali was sitting over here. When they got to a hotel, they knew that he was the one who negotiated for their freedom. It was, it was he, the one that they should give credit to. And so as they were walking through this door, they would look and they would see him. And some of them could not speak. Some of them were moved Some of them were crying. Some of them stopped to shake his hand. They embraced him. And to all of them, he said, you owe me nothing. If you remember what took place during that time, um, let me say it this way. If you were alive, there's no way you won't remember what took place during that time. Do you remember the Super Bowl in 1991? You may not remember who played. You may not remember the location. um, But I guarantee you remember who sang the national anthem beforehand. It was Whitney Houston. If you were watching that at that moment, you were just in the same position I was. I mean, the hair standing up on my arms, my neck, goosebumps all over my body, and even a tear coming down my face as I listened to her passionately sing of the greatness and the freedom of our country. As the camera panned around to the audience that was there, 
you also saw many who were filled with tears from all ages, young and old alike, were cherishing the freedom that they were experiencing, knowing that there were others who were in harm's way, who were presently at that moment giving their very lives so that we might enjoy a Super Bowl. Wars have this way of doing this to you and I in America. There's something about a war when it takes place, whether we're for the war or against the war. I don't think there's anyone here that is for lives being lost. There's no one that would say, yeah, it's a great thing. But whether or not we endorse the war or not, one thing happens for all of us. When the war takes place, you and I go back to that place where we ponder what it means to be free and we cherish our freedom, don't we? Now, I'm not saying that we don't appreciate it at all during peace times, but there's just something about these times in war in which it's, our, our, our awareness is heightened and we sense it more. We, are, um, we just appreciate it at a depth that we probably don't at other times. Here's what I've noticed about me. And so rather than placing it on you, let me say it this way. I noticed that as the time has gone on, I have tend to, uh, tend to get lulled into this mentality that freedom is a birthright. By golly, I'm American. Born in Mississippi, raised primarily in Alabama. Doggone it, I'm free. And therefore, freedom is all about me enjoying the freedom. There are others who have sacrificed for me, but what they have done is they've given me a life that I can live where I can go where I want to go. I can do what I want to do whenever I want to, however I want to, as long as somebody else is not harmed in the process. I tend to fall into this self-centered view of freedom that it's just all about me. You know who doesn't do that? Men and women in our military. It doesn't stop right here with them. They know there's a responsibility that comes with freedom. And some may even ask and object, well, now, wait a minute. Is freedom really even freedom if there's responsibility that comes along with it? Our military would say, absolutely. They know that they want to use their freedom for a greater cause than just themselves. I would suggest that the same thing holds true for our spirituality. I tend to get lulled into thinking that Christ, who has given me freedom, his life, his death, his resurrection, has purchased, accomplished salvation. He has given to me the freedom now of being freed from the power and the penalty of sin. And I tend to get lulled into thinking this freedom is for me. That God wanted to set me free so that I can live and go and do and be whatever I want, whenever I want. You know who never gets lulled into that mentality? The soldier, the one who said, I will voluntarily place myself in a position where I will give it all up so that others may live as free men. Is there a responsibility that comes with spiritual freedom? Well, according to Paul in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, absolutely. What good does it do for us to enslave someone else so that we might live as free? The responsibility to live is free. Here's my question that I, I would have been mulling over and, and, and pondering. I'm, I don't want to get into a political discussion. There's you know, all sorts of realms we could go with this, but what ultimately is the purpose of freedom? Why are we free? And maybe an even more important question is this. Who is freedom for? Is freedom primarily for us? Or is freedom primarily for someone else in a spiritual sense? I would answer it this way. 
Our freedom is not primarily for us. Our freedom is primarily for God. He has freed us so that we might become uninhibited worshipers of him. We have been freed from the power and the penalty of sin so that we might be worshipers of Jesus. Think of it this way. We have been freed so that we might voluntarily throw our hands up in the air and say, I submit, I surrender. I want to volunteer, become a bond servant of yours, Jesus, that I might live a life that reflects your greatness. There is no maximum freedom found outside of bondage to Jesus. But in bondage to Jesus is the freest we will ever be. We're going to look at a passage this morning, and my job really is to set us up for next week as Michael Goheen will come in and he'll sit more on this concept of Christ reigning over every square inch of all of the cosmos. My job is to set us up for there, and I want to give us just a couple of things by way of introduction before we look at our text. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And in this passage is a prayer. It's a prayer of Paul's. So Paul is going to say something to the Lord. He's going to, going to intercede on behalf of another group of people. He's going to go before the Father, and he's going to say some things, and he's going to ask some things for someone else. And I want to make sure that we hear this very clear this morning. There is no place that is easier for a pastor or really any of us to pick on and to kick someone when they're down than in the area of prayer. When we say the word prayer, Virtually every one of us in this building just drop our heads and we say, I know I'm a terrible prayer. Even if you have a gift of intercession, if the Lord has uniquely gifted you and you do this well, comparatively to, to the rest of us who do it poorly, even you would agree and acknowledge, I have not arrived. I have so much further to go. I just don't feel as though I am that dependent upon the Lord. So the first thing I want you to hear is this morning is not about kicking you when you're down. This morning is hopefully you will walk out of here and you will be encouraged primarily because of this. If you walk away with nothing else, please hear this. God is going to call us to pray. Okay? There's no getting around that. God is going to ask you and I from this morning, it'll be clear, God's going to ask us, Pray. But here's what we have to hear. Even if we blow it, even if we don't, it's not primarily about our prayers because there is one according to the book of Hebrews who sits at the right hand of God and he lives to intercede. And so Jesus is the one who continues on an ongoing basis to go before the Father and to pray for you, to pray for me, to pray for the world. Jesus is the one who always gets it right. And our focus must go back and say, oh, I'm missing it. But Jesus, thank you that you continue to intercede. So be encouraged. Jesus is praying this morning for your prayer life. It's easy to do that. So I have to say that from, from that perspective. It's easy for us to feel guilty and ashamed, and I hope that's not what we do this morning. But the other thing I do want us to point out is this. Prayer really is the great revealer, isn't it? I mean, of all the other things in our spiritual life that's out there, all things that are good and right and important, the sharing of our faith, the uh, the repeating of this good news to those who, who, uh, who are, are investigating wanting to hear it. The study of the scriptures, serving of other people. There's all sorts of things we could put in there that are good and right. But prayer is the great revealer of our true spiritual condition. Here's what I mean. We will pray to the degree that we believe God is responsible for the results. 
If you want to look and see how dependent we really are in our mindset, all you got to do is look at our prayer. Because prayer is by definition an admission, I I can't. It's a deep-seated conviction and belief that you can. And then it's just an appeal, will you? And in some ways, I know that's overly simplistic because there's communion, there's other things that happen in prayer, but I do think it's fair and it's true. It, it is the great barometer, it is the great revealer of where we are, of who we believe is most responsible for the results. And so if my child has a sickness that I know, a $25 copay to the doctor down in Johns Creek will take care of it, I probably am going to pray to that degree. I'm going to head on over there and I'm going to say, God, you know, give me some lights that are green. I want to get there quicker and... And Lord, you know, help him. I mean, it is you that's the healer, but I mean, you know, this doctor, he's the one that's gone to school for all this time. And I'm not going to pray with a great deal of fervency. I'm not going to pray with a great deal of dependency because I know 25 bucks will heal my child. Now, if my child, though, has an inoperable brain tumor, and I hear from the three world's leading pediatric neurologists, and they all give the same diagnosis, there's nothing we can do. Your son has two months to live. I'm going to pray because there's nothing that I can do about it. There's nothing I can do to change it. There's nothing I can do to alter it. There's nothing. I I have no power whatsoever in this. I am not in any way, shape or form deceived into thinking that I know more than the world's leading pediatric neurologists. I'm not in any way deceived into thinking I know what the father knows, but I do know that he is the creator and sustainer of it all. He's the one who made my child. He's the one who understands cancer. He's the one who can heal. So God, please heal. Oh, I'll pray then. Because I am fully aware of my inadequacy and his adequacy. So prayer is the great revealer. Please, don't feel shameful right now. (laughs) He intercedes for you. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes this beginning in uh, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul is writing to a group of Colossians here who are young in their faith. Colossae at the time when he was writing was a relatively unimportant and unknown city. Uh, Earlier on in its history, it had a great deal of influence, but where it is now, it's, it's pretty much out of the way. There's a man named Epaphras who was a disciple of Paul's. He was a church planner, and Epaphras goes and he plants several churches in this area, three churches that we think of here, and Colossae is one of them. Epaphras is from Colossae. And the the church is, uh, is made up primarily of Gentile converts, meaning those who did not have a previous knowledge of the laws of God. So their lifestyle was hard. 
uh, th- there were some things that they were involved in. And so for them now to, be, to hear what God's word has to say about how we uh, uh, live our lives, um, it was a complete turnaround for them. They're young in their faith. And just as a young child is open and vulnerable to sickness and disease and is necessary that the mother protects that child, this church was also young and prone to some sickness and disease, to some false teaching that would creep in. And so Paul is writing them to protect them from false doctrine. Now, we don't know exactly what that false doctrine is. We've got some pretty good guesses. We don't know specifically what it is that he was, uh, was going against, but this much is for sure. They were tending to place a little bit more hope in this secret knowledge, in this other philosophy that would take them out into saying that there's something more than Jesus that you have to add to your faith. And so Paul writes the strongest letter he can possibly write. No other letter in all of his letters that he writes zeroes in on this concept as well as this one does. He is writing to convince them, to remind them, to point them to the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus. It's not about a system, he's saying. It's about Jesus. It's not about a way of living. It's not about a deeper knowledge. It's not about a secret knowledge. It is solely about Jesus. It's about knowing him and making him known. It's about being empowered by him. It's about him living in and through you. You started with Jesus. Don't go on to something else. It's all about Christ. We know that he is centering in right here. And so the report comes back to him according to verse 9. The report comes back that they're doing well in their faith. And it causes him to rejoice. He says, we give thanks. But it also causes him to do something else. And that is, is it causes him to pray. Now let that sink in. Is your response to great things that are happening in your life prayer? The news that comes to you, your child is off at college. They've never really had a a sincere and deep walk with the Lord, but boy, they are getting after it right now at the University of Georgia even. They're getting after it spiritually. You hear that news, is your first thought to say, yes, and then to pray that God would sustain them? Or do you tend to back off in your prayers? Seeing that, well, now they're walking, now they may not need as much of my prayer. Paul says, I hear the good things, and it causes me to pray even more. Why? Because Paul is convinced that not his writing, not his sermons, not his sending of other people, that the only thing that can keep them and maintain them and grow them is God. Paul is aware of his inadequacy and of the adequacy of the, of, of the Lord. And so he hears the good news and he says that he prays. But look at the term that he uses. I love it. It's one of the reasons I'm using the ESV this morning because of two particular terms. I normally use the NIV. I like it. But the ESV, I think, gets it better this morning. He says, we have not ceased to pray. The word is stop. I think the best understanding of it, though, is cease because it carries with it this idea. We we alluded to it earlier. When when two countries enter into a ceasefire agreement, that means that there is war that's waging. There's war. There's battle that's happening between the two, and there's a clash that's taking place. And then along comes this offering. Along comes this this declaration, which there's going to be a ceasing of fire. And so you have all of this that's happening before, and now you have this. And Paul says... In this life that we're living, Jack, we are involved in a war. And that war is constant. And our enemy who roars around like a lion, the one who is seeking whom he may devour, the one who comes to steal and to kill and destroy, will not give up on the battle. 
He is constantly trying to move forward. He is constantly on the attack. And Paul says, I will not cease in waging war for you. I will not stop hitting my knees. I refuse to stop because I'm not battling against you. I'm battling for you. So mom and dad, have you ceased in praying for your child? Especially when it's been years since you've seen something happen. Spouse, have you ceased praying for your partner? You've been banging your head up against the wall. You've been doing everything you know to do, and you don't see the turnaround that you know is needed. Have you ceased hitting your knees? Friend, have you stopped? Have you left the battle? Seeing that what's out in front of you is not going the way that you want it to go, or maybe things are going the way you want Have you ceased to wage war? If you're like me, you probably have. If you're like me, you probably have grown weary. If you're like me, you have probably given in to sin. Listen just real quick to the words of John Bunyan. Prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Martin Luther, one of the great warriors in prayer who would wake up early in the morning and he would spend hours a day in prayer, said this about his own personal prayer life. He often would reach this place. This is how he describes it. Cool and joyless in prayer because of other tasks or thoughts for the flesh and the devil are always impeding and always obstructing prayer. I really believe this. I really believe the greatest enemy that you and I face It's just our own busyness, our own lethargy. We cease remembering that our job is to wage war right here. And we'll do that if we believe he's the one that's responsible for the results. But if we believe we're responsible for the results, we'll just work harder. First thing I noticed about Paul's prayer in here, there's just four observations I want to make briefly and And then just ask us a question at the end. But the first observation is this. Paul's prayer here is relentless. He does not quit. And what I'm saying to you today is I know you're tired. I I know your journey has been long. I know you don't possess the hope and and the, the faith that you long for. But remember him here. And spend time with him. He will take you into the throne room. Don't give up. Don't quit. If you have quit, pick it back up. Paul's prayer is relentless. The second thing I see in here is that Paul's prayer is also targeted. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I'm praying and I'm asking, I am begging, I am pleading, I am groveling before the Lord that you may be filled with, with knowledge. The term is a great term. It means to have complete knowledge. Now, what it does not mean is to have an exhaustive knowledge. It means to have a complete knowledge of everything we need to have knowledge of. 
A knowledge of his will and his will here, I don't think we should take in light of individual Christians that God is guiding us each individually in, in how it is that we approach our job or should we get engaged or should we go to this college or whatever it may be. I don't think that he's, he's talking about God's will in that sense. I think he's referring to God's will as his plan for salvation for a whole globe. I'm praying that you may be filled with this knowledge. The other thing about this term filled that's very interesting is this. It is not just a filling of an intellectual capacity. It is a filling to the point where we are moved into action. Meaning that I'm fully aware what God's plan is for the whole globe. And I'm saying, because I see, Lord, what you're calling us to, I'm going to jump on board with you and I'm going to move forward. We're going to move in the direction that is for you to take your plan of salvation, redemption, renewal, restoration for the entire cosmos. I'm going to join up with you and move forward in that direction to be filled with that knowledge means that I have been filled in such a manner that I'm being active in the process. Are you active? He then says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Takes me back here. Some words that are spoken about Jesus in Isaiah 11. Listen to this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Paul is drawing our attention right here to Jesus who jumped on board, who Jesus who set the pace. Jesus said, I'm going to take the glory of the knowledge of the Lord all over the earth and Paul is saying, I want you to have that kind of understanding. Just jump on board with God. His prayer is relentless. His prayer is also targeted. The third thing I see, though, is his prayer is purposeful. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is the great revealing here. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is why we have been freed and this is for whom we have been freed. We have been freed from the power and the penalty of sin so that we may walk in a manner that is worthy of Jesus, fully pleasing to God. We have been freed for God, for his pleasure. And I know some of us right now are thinking, is God really that shallow? Is his ego really that big? Is God really that needy that he needs humans to join in with him? And my simple response, it's not a full response, but my simple response would be this. God knows. He is fully aware because he is the designer. He is the architect of it all. And he's designed us in such a manner that apart from him, we will never experience what it is that we so long for deep in our very souls. And so what he's actually asking for here for us is the maximum benefit, the maximum satisfaction, the maximum of everything that you and I want. We have been freed for him to live a life through him. I love the terminology again, and it is to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Walk, I want to just read this to you. It comes from a guy named Douglas Moo. But the term walking in there um, carries with it for me a better idea than just kind of living. Living is a little bit nebulous for me, but walking gives an, a direction. It's, I'm walking in this specific direction right here. I'm on a course. I am moving. Listen to what Moo has to say. Paul's use of the verb meaning walk picks up on common Jewish and biblical idiom, according to which a person's lifestyle is pictured 
as a road that one travels along. Frequently, especially in wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, etc., two paths or ways are contrasted as a way of confronting the righteous with the decisive choice that they must make. And the command to walk is naturally used in this context. Now, here's just a great example that's going to come from Proverbs. Listen to this. It's how many times it uses this. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirit of the dead. No one, I'm sorry, no who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Thus you will walk in the ways of the just and keep to the paths of righteousness. I love the term because when you and I think about a walk, the worst possible walk that we can make is a walk that is always alone. But a great walk is a walk with someone. You've experienced a simple joy, haven't you, of just walking with a friend? in a certain direction. You've walked with your spouse. Maybe it's your spouse of 10 minutes, or it's your spouse of 60 years. You've walked with a friend. Maybe it's a friend that you met at a camp and you walked down the beach at that conference and that retreat and you got to know them during that walk. Or maybe you've walked with your friend as you are late in your 80s and you are comforting them in the loss of their spouse. You've walked down an airport You've walked with a loved one as they're about to get on an airplane and go to a different place, perhaps for a couple of weeks or perhaps for a couple of years. When we walk with someone, we get to know that someone. And what he's saying here is, I want you to walk in a manner, walk with the Lord in a manner that is worthy of Jesus. At other times he says that it's worthy of the gospel or that it's worthy of God. Here he says very specifically, worthy of Jesus. I meet with folks on a regular basis who have all kind of issues with Christianity. I really enjoy the process of meeting with them. I mean that. There are folks that I would consider skeptics and I don't use that in any negative term. Folks that tend to wonder, I mean, is the Bible really God's word? I mean, does it really... Can it really make the claim it doesn't have any errors, et cetera, so forth? And we meet, and, and so many times in these meetings, I hear this from people. Look, dude, I, I think Jesus is fantastic. And I didn't know all about Jesus before this investigation, but I'm telling you, when I read about Jesus, Jesus is the real deal. I mean, the way that he loved people is phenomenal. The way he interacted with people was kind and gracious and compassionate And they'll go on and on. Jesus, I love. I got no problem with Jesus. It's you that I got a problem with. It's you and all those people in the church that I got an issue with. It's not Jesus. And and then I get a chance to say, you're right, dude. We are just like that. We are that bad off. I'm probably worse than anyone you have ever met. If you want to put the term hypocrite on it, I'm probably the biggest hypocrite you will ever come in contact with. I so clearly believe that what Jesus said to do is the right thing to do, and yet I just don't do it. And then I quote to them some song lyrics from an old DC talk song in which it says, it only serves to confirm my suspicions that I'm still a man in need of a Savior. And I tell them, Jesus coming is about living a perfect life. It was about living a life that he would put on display that we would all live one day, but not right now. 
Jesus is the only one who could live this type of a life. And he lived that life because he knows that I can't live that life. I won't live that life. And so I get a chance to hang on to his coattails and just say, thank you, Jesus, for what it is that you have done. What Paul is saying here is he's raising the standard saying, what I want you to do, Colossians, perimeterians, what I want you to do is to live a life that is worthy of being on the same level as Jesus, being mentioned in the same breath with Jesus. No pressure. Of course, we're not going to do that. He's raising the standard to draw our attention (laughs) to the fact that we will never do that. So that's why we pray. Real quickly. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, what he's going to do is going to give us four participial clauses, and he's going to tell us the what of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that's fully pleasing to him. He's going to give us general characteristics here. He's not going to give us the specifics of what it is that you and I should do with our lives on a daily basis. He's going to give us general characteristics of of what it is that we do in a walk that is pleasing to the Lord, fully pleasing to him, worthy of Jesus. The first thing is, is that we would bear fruit in every good work. Bear fruit, I think two things that are implied here. One, we ought to regularly and consistently see people that are coming to the faith, whether that takes two weeks or two months or two years. We ought to see people that are coming to the faith. Now, God has dispensed his gifts in different manners. The Holy Spirit has dispensed this out differently. So please don't do yourself the disservice of comparing yourself to Randy Pope, thinking I should have just as many converts as he does. The scriptures also talk about some will, will produce a crop of a hundredfold, others 30. Others. It, the point is this, you and I ought to regularly and consistently see a track record of people that are coming in contact with us and we're just exposing them to this word and then we see over time they come to faith. Is there fruit in your life? The other thing is the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and I always like to leave out self-control because I don't like it. Do you see the fruit of your spirit? To perfection, no, just meaning this. Do you see yourself becoming more patient? Realizing that where you got to get to, you say, I'm nowhere close to where I want to be. But I do think I'm more patient this year than I was 10 years ago. Do you see this track record of growth? It's an indication that the God is doing something, the Holy Spirit's doing something inside of you, transforming you from within. Bearing fruit in every good work. I love that it's not specified there. It's whatever it is that you do, whatever work God calls you to, bear fruit. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. I want to come back. Let me, let me do that. Let me, let me save that for just uh, at the end. May you be strengthened with all power. So be strengthened is the other thing that's given here. And the power that we are strengthened with is not ours. It's not us who go out and change ourselves It is the power of God. It's not half God and half me. It's all God's power according to his glorious might, meaning that we are strengthened to the highest possible strength so that we can endure with patience and joy. We can endure whatever it is that God puts in front of us. We can endure the long, hard journey of knowing that we have to pray day after day, year after year for the person who still has not yet been changed. God's power will give us that. Remember, it's Christ who has an unlimited patience. The last thing, the last uh, clause he gives there is, I think the joy goes along with giving thanks. So giving thanks to the Father, it's joyfully giving thanks. And what that means is this, that we would give thanks to the Father 
just as a response to what he has done. Paul's prayer is relentless. Paul's prayer is targeted. Paul's prayer is purposeful. The last thing, it is motivated. And you might even want to add the word properly motivated in there. This is where Michael Goheen is going to pick up on next week. Paul is introducing us to this right here now. But he is praying because of the work of the Father and the work of the Son. The Father is the one who has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. The Father is the one who has rescued us. So he has taken us from this kingdom that is over here, this kingdom that is led by the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he has transferred us, placed us over here in this kingdom of light to the king who has come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. And he now sits on the supremacy of Christ. That's where we'll go next week. Can I close with just two quick points of application? And I'm going over. I'm sorry. If you need to leave, you can leave. But <laughs> two, two points of application. First, repent of your self-centered view of freedom. Join me in repenting of my self-centered view of freedom. The spiritual freedom you and I have been given is not primarily for us. It is primarily for God. And oh, what he'll do with us. The second thing is pray this very same thing for yourself and also pray it for others. Paul does not give us a full treaty on prayer here. He is giving us a great prayer, though, to pray. (laughs) At the end of the day, the essence of this prayer is that we would be able to discern God's will for his globe and then be empowered to do it. So I said I want to close the story. uh, Let me do that. I think the heart of what is behind this passage is that you and I would now live a life. We would walk in a manner alongside of the Lord, getting to know who the Lord is. And my question for you today is, do you know him or do you know about him? I may have shared this story before. But after the time in which Muhammad Ali went out to, uh, to Iraq, it was just a couple of years later, I'm a guy that's out in California. And I'm in an airport. And this airport... Um, I'm there late at night at San Francisco, and, and, and I, am, uh, I just begin washing my hands because that's what you do when you go to the bathroom. And as I'm washing my hands, I, I, in walks this particular gentleman, and this gentleman is named Joe Montana. Now, I played quarterback in high school. I, I handed the ball off 80 times a game and threw it twice. But I tried to pattern my throw after Joe Montana. And I began to know so much about Joe Montana. I could tell you about his life. I could tell you about his children. I could tell you about his tastes, his likes, his dislikes, all that. I knew so much about Joe Montana that I felt like I actually knew Joe Montana. But I didn't know Joe Montana. And Joe Montana didn't know me. So in he walks at this bizarre hour of the night. And I look up and catch him. And I see that it's him. And and so he uses the restroom, and so I make sure that I'm washing my hands even longer (laughs) just to be clean. And then he comes and washes his hands, and it's that moment where I don't know quite what to do yet. Do I look at him and freak him out, or or do I... (laughs) So... (laughs) I finally realized, dude, how many opportunities am I going to get to meet my childhood hero? And so I just turn and I face him. And it's that moment, you know, where he's watching and he realizes that awkward boy is staring at him. And so he's here. (laughs) And so he looks up and, and, and he hands out, puts out his hand and says, hi, my name is Joe. 
It's just, it's just the two of us in this airport. It was like out of a movie. I knew we were going to leave here best friends. <laughs> it was going to be awesome. And so what happens is, I, th- this was my response. <laughs> and my heart is pounding out of my chest. And I... Hi, my name is Joe. Says it a second time. (laughs) And at 22 years old, this was my response after the second time. (laughs) I start crying like a 16-year-old girl at a Justin Bieber concert. I totally lose all rational thought. It is Joe Montana in front of me and I just cry and Joe tries for a third time to introduce. And he leaves and I never shook the guy's hand. And what I've realized is there is a vast difference between knowing so much about someone and yet actually experiencing that someone. And what Paul is saying here is this. I haven't just, Jesus is saying, I haven't just freed you so that you can be free and do whatever you want. I have freed you to draw you into me, to know me, to enjoy me, to experience me. And when you experience me, you will never again be the same. And I want to empower you to live a life where others can freely experience me. Are you free? And are you walking worthy? He will make you do it. Let me pray. Father, our prayer is um, that we would know you and enjoy you and that you would do something so significant in us that it would be impossible for us to remain the same. And so our prayer is very simple. Would you just have your way with us? We pray all of this. In the great name of Jesus, amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.